Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the Band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 195 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Roger Earl from Foghat, I want to remind you about everything you can find online at mistresscarry.com. You can find every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast and every episode of my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. You can check out my concert and events calendar to get details on every show coming through New England and all of the places you can come and hang out with me. You can read my blog, send me a message right here in the studio, and shop in the online Mistress Carrie store. Find all that and more at mistresscarry.com. My guest this week is a rock and roll legend. For over 50 years, Roger Earl has been behind the drum kit of Foghat, and he's still going strong celebrating the success of the band's latest album, Sonic Mojo, and touring with Starship, including a stop this Friday, March 1st, at the Lynn Auditorium in Massachusetts. I caught Roger on a rare day off at his home in Long Island. We talked about everything from 70s music to motorcycles, fishing to jazz, Chuck Berry to Spinal Tap, the late great Taylor Hawkins, Vinyl, his love of Boston, and Golden Doodles. Roger is an absolute rock icon, and I was really excited to get to know him and have him on the show. So allow me to introduce you to Roger Earl from Foghat. Mr. Roger Earl, what a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Carrie. Well, I'm home. Um, I'm up. I'm uh, dressed more, more you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every day uh, above ground is a good day. That's right. Uh, and it's actually it's a beautiful day. I'm home in uh, Long Island on the North Shore. And, uh, yeah, uh, we've done a bunch of shows this year. Everything's going great. All the shows have been sold out, which hasn't happened until since that, probably the middle of 1970s. <laughs> Uh, everything's going great. Got a new album out called Sonic Mojo. It's in the top 10 of the Billboard blues charts. So, yeah, life is good. Life, life is, is really good. good. I yeah, love life. getting a chance to um, 
see everybody's environment. And what happens more often than not is I end up sharing a coffee with my guests. So cheers. Is it coffee or tea? Oh, coffee. Tea uh, is in the afternoon or just to be sociable. But no, coffee. Uh, A minimum of two before uh well no i talk to people first thing in the morning because they say get up i go where, where are we going <laughs> but uh a minimum of two coffees you gotta tread lightly because i know that you're married to a sicilian woman like my husband is and you better be caffeinated and behaving when you well, come at us or you pay the price no linda's known me since 1976 she was our studio manager uh, office manager, sorry. And uh, we, we became friends. Um, she, she came to my wedding, my first, my second wedding. Uh, I went to Linda's first wedding. We've been friends forever. Then about 25 years ago, 26 years ago, I thought I'd ruined a perfectly good friendship. <laughs> but, it, but it was possibly the best move I'd ever made in my life. <laughs> Actually, the truth is, Linda wouldn't have touched me with a 10-foot pole back in the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard people say that if you remember the 70s, you weren't really there. No, I was there, and I remember it was was a very, very exciting time, and um, we had tons of fun. Um, I was probably accused of having too much fun from time to time, but, yeah, it was – no, it was great. It was – I mean, I love being on the road. I love playing. And, uh, you know, the 70s were great. I remember a lot of it. Yeah. (laughs) What do you think it is about the 70s that was just such a prolific decade for rock and roll? Uh, Well, the drugs were really good. No, (laughs) be serious, Roger. Um, It was at, like, the tail end of the 50s and 60s, which is... You know, when, that was when rock and roll, per se, you know, started making it on the radio. Before that, it was like, um, it's the devil's music. And, um, you know, rock and roll is never going to make it. Uh, but it, it it's here to stay. Um, I think that was it, probably. And it, the 70s was also a time of change, real change, all around. You know, um, there was a lot of... Uh, stuff going on obviously the war in vietnam which was it was the first time i think you know that the 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 country actually turned around and said you know this is not good and and it wasn't you know uh, and the only people that really suffered were all our american troops like being booed and called names whereas they were just being told what to do by their government don't get me started on that because I, I have a lot of friends that were, you know, in Vietnam. and My uh, uncle is a Purple Heart recipient, so I appreciate yeah. your sentiment. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think was never a good thing. But that was like, you know, that was produced by a government with its worries about communism. It was like, come on, let's worry about our own country. Um but that was a sad time for America, and and that, and of course, then there was a lot of protests, obviously, about it, and that you know linked up with rock and roll. I mean, you know, when you go into war, you you don't say, "Well, let's country." No, they say, "Let's rock and roll." <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, um, still hasn't changed that much in some ways, but music has, and um, I'm just glad to still be here and playing. Isn't it? funny that even back in the 70s people were calling rock and roll the devil's music and saying it wasn't going to last and all these years later they're still saying rock is dead and yet you're a perfect example of how rock has never gone anywhere and will never go anywhere (laughs) putting up the devil horns like angus right now um music would always change though and I, I think that's a good thing. You know, like uh, music is uh, is often – but actually I remember one time I was, uh, my wife and I were riding our bikes out in Colorado, push bikes riding around, and we went stopped off at this record store, and the top of the record store it said, without music, life would be a mistake. 
and music is it's like a moment in time for so many people. And actually, when you're making and recording music and you know being creative, they're like moments in time. They're never going to be the same again. They aren't. And um, and it's uh, you know it's uh, it gives people. I don't know. For me, memories of when things were going on, things you know, right from right from when I was a kid, I remember certain songs, certain music. The first kiss, no, it's the second one. I think my mum kissed me first. Rock and roll is here to stay, one way or another. But you know, uh, new music. You know, every generation should have their music. You know, it shouldn't stay the same. It shouldn't be. You know, like the seventies or the eighties or the fifties or sixties, it should always change. Um, uh, that's the beauty of music, I think. But actually, my attitude and appreciation, I should say, of music has changed immensely over the years. I remember, like back in early sixties, um, when I, I first left home when I was fifteen, and uh, I, I had a job. I was a commercial artist. But it was time to move. I wanted to be in central London because that's where everything was going on. And uh, my cousin, who was five years older than me, was going to college there. And he had a flat. And uh, I was sleeping rough for a few days. And he said, well, a few few weeks, actually. Anyway, he saved me. And he was into jazz. And I remember him playing uh, Miles Davis, Sketches of Spain. And I'm listening now, I'm, I'm into rock and roll and, and I've just discovered Muddy Waters and, uh, and you know, becoming a real blues fan. And he's playing me this stuff and I didn't get it. I do now. It's just this incredible music. So uh, some things come with age and if you stick around long enough, that's another thing. You stick around long enough, people start paying attention. They say, are you still here? <laughs> <laughs> there must be some merit to it if they're still doing it after all these years. Yeah, well, um, I'm going to roll till I'm old and roll till I drop. I don't want to, I mean, I play in a great band. Um, I, I always have, um, ever since the very first band I was in, I played with really great players. And uh, I think, and I know that helps. You know, when you play with really good people, you have to sort of, you know, be up to it. Um, uh, I always wanted to play in a band. You know, drums, sitting down banging drums is okay. And, you know, drum solos can be fun. But uh, playing in a band and being creative, making music, that's what I really enjoy. That's that's the fun part. When, and I play in a great band. So, Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. That time in England, it comes up all the time on the show, the ping pong ball of rock and roll that we seem to keep lobbing over the ocean back and forth, inspiring new generations. I just talked to Rick Wills from Foreigner recently, and he talked about, do you know Rick? 
No, not personally, but I, I know who he is. Yeah. And so he he was talking about in the early days of his career that he was like, yeah, me and David Gilmore. And then we went up and we're hanging out with Brian Epstein and like names that are just etched in granite in the history of rock and roll. And now you're talking about being in London when you're 15 and discovering Muddy Waters. Can you talk to me about that era of rock and roll and what it was like to be in England? Because so much came out of that time in the UK that then arrived on the shores of the United States and changed rock and roll forever. Um, well, uh, the Stones, I used to go and see the Stones at Ilpai Island. Um, in fact, the one time I saw them was when Brian Jones wasn't there and their uh, piano player played. He was their um, road manager at the time, Stu Stewart. And uh, I was only, what, 16, I think. But, you know, I looked older than that. And so I, w- I remember going up to the bar and getting a beer and Mick, turned re- Mick Jagger turned around, bumped into me and said, oh, sorry, mate, my brush with greatness. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, the Stones were uh, my favourite to go and see in, in clubs. Also, the Yardbirds were fantastic. They had a residency at the Marquee Club. But my favourite club, my favourite band, was Cyril Davis and, and his Rhythm and Blues All-Stars. Now, that was an incredible band to hear live. Uh, the Who, of course, I uh, would see them at the Ealing Club. Yeah, no, it was... Um, it was a great time to sort of, you know, to grow up in London. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was fantastic. All the music that we were inspired by came from America. It was, you know, the blues started uh, and then then we got jazz and then we got bebop, then uh, rock and roll, country, uh, gospel music, country, you know, uh, rhythm and blues, uh, you know, this is the land of music. And I think this, the folk hat, I think, has absorbed all those different pieces. And we have, I mean, when uh, every member of the band, right, right from like 1971 when we were formed, had, you know, it was basically a blues rock and roll band, but we all enjoyed this other stuff and jazz. I mean, we would at any time, any one of us would find something that was cool. They'd be try and turn each other onto these different songs. So, uh, yeah, it's basically, you know, what do they call it? That they did put a moniker on it, Americana. But this is the land of music. This is where it comes from. And like we just grabbed it because we speak a similar language. <laughs> We've bastardized it somehow, but yes. No, I don't think, not at all, actually. Um, if you'll notice, a, a number of uh, English singers sing with an American accent. So, uh, yeah. Hey, we're related, whether we like it or not. <laughs> oh, by the way, um, all is forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> As I sit just outside of Boston, I appreciate that. Yeah, all is forgiven. Actually, Boston um, is, I've always had a close relationship with it. Um I used to be in a band in the uh, mid-80s called the New England Jam Band with some of Boston's greatest players, and that was a lot of fun. In fact, <clears throat> Lonesome Dave Perry, our original lead singer in <clears throat> 1984, decided to move back to England. So, you know, we were just a three-piece, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I got a call from a local promoter up there and said, you want to be in a band? And I said, Okay. Um, and it was, that was a lot of fun, actually, the New England jam bands. I think it's so funny. Rick Wills again from Foreigner, because I just spoke to him recently, yeah. is an English guy, but, but spends half the year now in New England and you've relocated to not New England, but the Northeast in Long Island. What is it about the Northeast and the States that makes all of these British musicians want to move here? Oh, that's that's easy. The boat drops us off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Literally, uh, when I first first came here in 69, when I was in Savoy Brown, and um, we were doing a tour with the Nice 
and um, another English band. I can't quite remember who that is. Um, anyway, I met this guy who eventually became our manager, Tony Otida, and he lived out on Long Island. And we were talking, and I was telling him how I enjoy fishing. And he said, have you ever caught a striped bass or a bluefish? And I said, no. He said, you want to come and stay at my parents' house? And uh, so that was my introduction to Long Island, where I live. And, um, yeah, I really enjoy it here. You know, the water, the people. Uh, made a lot of friends here, uh, a lot of friends. And uh, I try to behave myself now. <laughs> Are you still fishing? <laughs> yes, of course I am. Not, not today, of course, but... Um, Soon as the beginning of April rolls around, the stripers come in, and uh, yeah, uh, it's uh, actually it's a beautiful part of the country out here in Long Island. Um, I'm real fortunate. I want to go back to what you were talking about being 15 and kind of being on your own. Anytime I get a chance to talk to a drummer, I can only imagine it's a parent's worst nightmare that A, your kid <laughs> wants to grow up and be a musician, and B, that they pick the drums. The biggest, the loudest, the biggest pain in the ass instrument there is in rock and roll. Um, actually, um, there was always music in my house growing up. I grew up in southwest London, Hounslow. And um, my dad played piano somewhat in the style of like Fat Swaller like honey gauge, honey, honeysuckle rose and like, you know, that. Um, my older brother, Colin, who was four years older than me, he started learning the piano as well. Uh, when I was 12 years old, my father took me to see Jerry D. Lewis in a theatre in southwest London. And as my mother liked to say, he was never the same after that. It addled <laughs> his brain. <laughs> Uh, Your mom I, sounds like she belongs on Monty Python. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, uh, I'm being cruel, I think. Mom and dad come from the east end of London. Um, I had fantastic parents. We, we weren't rich by any stretch, but um, never went hungry. You know, we grew vegetables in the back garden. And my grandfather, I remember, would always find exotic fruits. I mean, we were on rations till I was eight years old. So, you know, we had chickens in the backyard. Mum and dad grew vegetables. Um, but uh, there was always music in our house. Dad played like, played the piano. Mum sang a bit. Dad sang. Um, and I think them coming from the East End of London, as and dad had about five people in his family's siblings, there was always music. Anytime anybody came over for uh, maybe a Sunday dinner or a party, somebody's birthday or any of the holidays, Dad would play the piano, or we would. The radio was all, always on. Anytime there was music on, uh, or the TV or the radio, it was turned up. So when I told my, asked my dad, I said, "I want to get a motorbike." I was what twelve, <laughs> and he said, well, "I'm not helping you with that, son." I was working. I worked three nights a week after school and Saturday mornings, and uh, I. Said, Right, well, I want to get a drum kit. And he said, all right. Uh, and he knew a, a teacher who, who taught drums, really great player, jazz musician. And um, so I started taking drum lessons. And um, see, that 12, three years. And by the time of my 15th birthday, I'd saved up half the money for my a drum kit. And that's, dad signed on the dotted line. And I carried on playing and paying. Because uh, drums are expensive. And I joined my first band when I was 16, 17 with three other people I went to school with. They'd been playing since they were like nine or ten. How much was that original drum set that you saved up for? I don't remember. Um, it was a black pearl premier drums. And I had a 20-inch Zildjian crash ride and an 18-inch crash ride and hi-hats. Yeah, it was, um, and I was off. That's all I ever wanted to do was to play in a band. But I had to have a day job, which I did, and I was good at. I was a commercial artist, and uh, they tolerated me. <laughs> <laughs> One of the ways you get good at an instrument is obviously trying to play music that you listen to. 
So what was the first song that you could play along to and you go, okay, I think I'm getting good at this? Still twirling the six of this day. Uh, I have a practice pad in every room in the house. My wife is very, very tolerant, and so is my manager, and so and so is my girlfriend. Actually, <laughs> uh, I'm I ha- I'm married to the Holy Trinity: um, wife, girlfriend, and manager. She has a lot to deal with, uh, <laughs> and I am blessed. But um, uh, no, I have a practice pad here. I have a. A shed out in the backyard where my drums are set up. They're taken down at the moment because we're coming to Lynn, Massachusetts on March first. Yeah, that's right, March first. Um, so I'm looking. That's why my drums are they're already uh, packed away in our road manager's car, or rather truck, I should say. Um, yeah. So what was it that? When did you know you were getting good? When you could play along with what song? Well, I when I first started playing, um, I would listen to Jimmy Reed, Muddy Waters, um, Chuck Berry. I learned to play listening to Chuck Berry um, and Muddy. Muddy's drummers were a little bit uh, – I couldn't quite grasp that at the time, but I would listen to the records. But, yeah, uh, Chuck Berry was probably – the start of it uh, without, you know, without Chuck Berry, without Willie Dixon, there will be no rock and roll. That's what started it. And um, I would have, I moved back t- to my parents' house after being away for about two or three months. <laughs> and uh, and dad let me use his uh, woodshed, which was attached to the house, wood wood, wood, wood making t- uh, shed. And we soundproofed it. And I would play in there, and I would have two six-inch speakers to over like this. Shed was like six foot by seven foot, and the line went into the house to a grunted tape player that had all the songs that I wanted to play to. And around eight thirty at night, Mum would pull the plug. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so that's how I played and. I always have a pad with me, a practice pad. Um, and in fact, uh, I always carry like a practice uh, pad and a practice bass drum pedal on the road with me. So I request bottom floors on the hotels because if somebody else is like below me. So... That's very courteous of you. I try. I try. <laughs> There's more pressure on the drummer and the singer's vocal cords. Like those are the two guys that if, if they're not able to keep up, everybody's in trouble. And for the drummer in a band like Foghat, that's been around for more than 50 years, being able to physically continue to be able to play at a high level, that's a lot of pressure on you to stay in shape. The rest of the guys can get fat and out of shape, but not you. Uh, you know, it's interesting because um, back in the 70s when we had, you know, lots of time and buses and trucks and stuff, I would always have a, um, a drum kit in the dressing room and we would have amps and we would play before we would go on stage. But we've also, uh, what we also do now, we have small little tiny amplifiers like little Marshalls or one Fender and we practice in the dressing room. There's just small abs, and I have a practice pad and pedal, and we just sit in there and play. And um, it gets you loose, it gets everything sort of ready so that um, you can have fun when the real thing is. <laughs> and you turn those amps up to nine and a bit, or is it 11? Oh, thank you for saying 11. <laughs> it makes me so happy for you to say that with a British accent. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we go to 11, it's like one more than 10, isn't it? Spinal uh, yeah. Tap <laughs> is true and still holds up. To this day, it's still funny. Well, I I used to have like volume knobs on my drum kit, but I broke them off. <laughs> <laughs> I always ask bands, 
what their spinal tap moment is on stage because every band has got a story about when it all went to shit on stage. What's yours? Well, um, <clears throat> there was two or three. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, probably one of the recent ones that we were doing. We were on a cruise about three years ago, uh, three or four years ago, and uh, Marshall. Uh, we were we were playing on the deck. Uh, it was Rock Legends cruise, and uh, the, it was really windy, and both stacks of Marshalls got blown over. I was in the middle, and they missed me. <laughs> but uh, uh, there's probably been a number of them. Uh, that was a good one. Um, another one will come to me in a in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> After celebrating a 50th anniversary with a band, what do you attribute the staying power of Foghat to? What? Why? Do you continue to get new generations of fans? And why is the music still so loved? What do you think it is? Well, the reason uh, we play music right from the very beginning is because I, I love the creative process of writing and, you know, and just jamming for one for a better word. Look at that. I am so happy that vinyl is back and more popular than ever. It makes me so happy. Well, I, actually, I was happy with um, CDs because I can put them in the car and they're easier to carry. Trying to play one of these in the car is... Difficult. It is difficult. I, they did try it once or twice, I think, back in the late 50s and early 60s, but... Uh, that's another story. Eight tracks don't get the credit they deserve for being the first way to make music portable. Yeah, yeah. And eight tracks were horrible. They, I mean, I had a car, I had a 1974 Jensen Interceptor, and it had an eight track player, which I hated because it would, halfway through the song, it would change and it would eat the, eat the machines. And um, I remember listening to uh, Bad Company. In, in that car, and all of a sudden the, the machine goes, mm, mm, and another song comes on. <laughs> that no, that was annoying. Uh, bad company, well, great band. I like that band. But how did that come up? I don't know. Paul Rogers is uh, he has a new album out. It's really good. So do the Stones. They have a new album out. Who else has a new album out? Fog oh. Hat. This is your first number one debuting album, isn't it? Yeah, debut number one on the uh, Billboard Blues charts. It's still in there. It's been on about 13 or 14 weeks now. It's, uh, it's seventh or something. Yeah, we're in good company. Um, and and to get to your question, it's it's all about the music. Uh, that's why we do it. It's uh, as it is another story. About three or four months last year, we played a show in El Dorado, Arkansas. Now, in the theater, they had all these signs around saying, this is how you pronounce our name. It's not El Dorado, it's El Dorado. <laughs> so, but the reason I remember it was the first night that we decided to play three songs from the new album, which is pretty brave, actually. But um, all three songs, we, we split them up in, in, in the set. Uh, they all went down really well. And so I remember that. And then when the show was over, my I'm sitting backstage in the dressing room with our lead singer, Scott Holt, and uh, we're sharing a Cabernet Sauvignon, nice nice red wine. And uh, Scott says to me, what other job out there that when you finish working, the people like stand up and clap and cheer? I have a great job. <laughs> you know, um, other jobs, hundreds of jobs are like, it's like a thankless task and you have to sort of make the best of it. I, on the other hand, playing in this band, uh, yeah. You know, the thing is, uh, we, we actually get paid for traveling. We'd all play for free. We're typical musicians. Uh, you know, we play in our dressing room. We uh, play on stage because it's fun. I've heard uh, musicians say that, that you... You don't pay me for the two hours on stage. You pay me for the 22 hours off stage. Right, right. Getting there. Trains, planes, automobiles. Hurry up and wait. But um, 
The other thing is, uh, I know, and so does the, the rest of the band, we know how fortunate we are to be doing this at like um, this juncture in our career. Uh, it's, um, but there again, I never wanted to do anything else. I always like worked, you know, people left the band, people passed on. Uh, th that was the hard part, you know, losing Lonesome Dave was tough. Losing Craig McGregor, our longtime bass player, because we were re we were really brothers in every sense of the word. Um, it was rough, but you carry on. I mean, uh, you mourn and you deal with what's going on. But um, Folkhats always been a band, you know. We didn't always see eye to eye and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But when it came to playing on stage, um. We were very much a band, everybody, uh, especially, I think, Lonesome Dave, our original lead singer. One of the beauties of playing with him, he was kind of quiet afterwards, though occasionally we would have a few libations together. Um, when he got on stage, it was always 110%. It was never like, even when he was ill, he had uh, kidney cancer. But um, he still gave it everything he had. And uh, this band's tried to keep that attitude, certainly as far as I'm concerned anyway. And it's important. You get that hour and a half or whatever it is each night. So you give it give it everything you got because tomorrow might be too late. <laughs> You've had this career for so long and you do so much traveling. Where is the craziest place you've bumped into your own music? Like in an elevator, in a supermarket, like where did you go? And you were like, wait, are they playing fog hat right now? Uh, actually, I, um, I do remember one time and I shared it with, um, a promotion man from Warner brothers, our original parent company, the Bearsville records. I'm still good friends with him, Andy Janice. And we're down, I think we're in Louisiana somewhere. And, uh, Slow Ride has been released, what is that, 75, something like that. And uh, we uh, we go to um, a fish fry place down in Louisiana. And we walk in there. We were out just out walking. It was hot. Uh, but I wanted some fish and chips. So we walk in there, and Slow Ride is playing on the radio in a, in a fish fry place. It was like. That I remember. That was that was really funny. And he was the promo and he was the promotion man for Warner Brothers. And uh yeah, that was cool. Did you get yeah, free fish that day? Yeah, well, yeah, we had uh yeah, fried fish and chips. But uh Did you say, wait, you're playing my music though? Did you get the free fish? Uh, no, no. <laughs> you, you try I, I try not to sort of like go on about that. It's like you just just enjoy the moment. You know, it's like one of those things you go, and even now it's our fans um, uh, send stuff to us. Like if it's on the radio, they'll send a picture to us, like when the new stuff is being played. Because uh, that's what's really cool about this new record. It's actually getting played on the radio, radios that can play it, you know, because I know you have um, issues, but that's all right. Um, you know, this put time in our career for it to be on the radio and people actually buying your record. That's really fucking cool. <laughs> and that song specifically has become like a biker anthem. Like I'm a motorcycle rider myself and slow ride has become that biker anthem. Like you probably can't go anywhere without an obnoxious biker coming up to you because of just because of slow ride. Now, bikers aren't obnoxious, actually. Most of them are CEOs and like, um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you've got to have a, de uh, you know, you've got to be earning a living to have a Harley anyway. Um, I haven't ridden since 76. I'm not allowed. Hands and feet. What are you kidding? I get it. I get yeah. it. Um, last time I rode a bike was uh, 76. Um, I was, I still hadn't bought a house. Everybody else in the band had bought a house. I was like uh, still single. And I I'd rented a shack on a beach out here in Port Jefferson. And my uh, daughter came over from England. And my girlfriend, who I'd just broken up with, her daughter is staying with me as well. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, 
our front of house engineer had just finished um, restoring a Triumph, you know, four speed. It was a twin. It was a really nice bike. And he, and he was putting it out for sale. I said, you're selling it? He said, yeah. I said, because I, I also hadn't ridden since I was about 17. I took it out for a ride and said, wow, this is great. <laughs> and uh, so I called up the office and said, can you give Bob uh, $1,000, please? And then I got a call from my manager said, what sort of bike costs $1,000? I said, oh, it's great. And uh, it's, it's a Triumph, you know, twin and like blah, blah, blah. He said, a motorbike? I said, yeah, what? He said, do you know how much it costs, you know, getting you insured for the cars that you have? I had two cars. I had a 67 Corvette 427 oh. and a Jetson Interceptor convertible. That was like the company car. But it was like, do you know how much it costs to insure a drummer? I said, no, didn't really care. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> there was some back and forth about how dangerous it is riding a bike out on here on Long Island. Um, and actually, it was about three months later, Bob Coffey, who was our sound engineer, who restored this bike, was riding it. And um, an older person... Uh, sideswiped him, just made a left turn into him. He was in the hospital for seven months. But uh, sometimes I'm a little jealous about people riding bikes and wish I could do it. But there again, I don't know, holding a heart. I, I sat on one, like, um, I did some interviews with George Saragood and I are good friends. And uh, we were doing, doing an interview with somewhere and there was these Harleys, so we sat on them. And we were talking, and I'm going, this thing is heavy. <laughs> I mean, I have legs, but... Uh, Mine's not even one of the giant touring bikes, and it's like yeah. 680 pounds. They're heavy. That Yeah, no, that's heavy. Actually, Linda and I have talked about getting a bike from time to time, and then we go, nah. You know, if you're out somewhere like out west, it's probably better, but Long Island, I don't know, you got to be brave. You guys have played at Sturgis. I went for the first time yeah. last year. And when oh, did you, you? Oh, it was awesome. My husband and I had a blast. Yeah, yeah, seeing the buffalo and just riding through all the national parks. When you right. get out in the middle of nowhere, yeah, the riding is a lot better. But, like, up in New England with the roads and the traffic, it's scary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. So that's why I don't ride. But, um I like convertibles. Though. I've always had convertibles. <laughs> Please tell me you still have that 67 Corvette. No. Oh. Uh, I, I bought it in uh, 1973, or might have been four. I think it was 73. Um, I got my first royalty check ever, $3,000. I was living out here on Long Island. I was staying here. And uh, I went to a local deli in Rocky Point, and on the on the cash register it said '67 uh, 427 Corvette Tri Power Four Speed Convertible Silver with a black stinger had a white roof, which was pretty horrible, but that didn't matter. Black uh, plastic seats, four, Muncie Four Speed. Only had like thirty five thousand miles on it, but it was three thousand three hundred dollars. So I go out, take it out for a ride with the owner, who was working in the deli. Had the original red line tires on it as well, and uh, we get back to the deli, and I said, "I'll give you three thousand dollars." He said, "No, I want three thousand three hundred." My manager's wife at the time was an assistant manager in the bank, and she said, first of all, Roger." You have to put the check in the bank. <laughs> uh, I, oh, she said, then you're going to need to, a loan because you're going to need to insure it. And if anything goes wrong with it, I went, oh. So I put the $3,000 check in the bank, got a loan for $1,500, went back about three or four days later, took it for another ride and bought it. And that was my driver until I kept it for... When did I sell it? I had three cars and I had a two-car garage when I eventually bought a house. But um, 
that probably was my favorite car. I've had a lots of really fine cars, but that was great to drive. Um, the only trouble was about 135, the nose would come up. <laughs> well, it, it was it was road tested uh, 157 miles an hour with the with the gearing it was on it, but I had new shocks put on the front. Uh, the car was great, and but 135 miles an hour, the nose would go. But I didn't alter the bodywork or anything. But uh, yeah, it was a great car. Rock stars uh, but, always have cool cars. Always. But I was I, I was a car fan ever since I was a kid. My father used to work at uh, Aston Martins at their old factory in Felton, which was about three miles away from where I grew up. So when I was come, I'd come home from school when I was a kid. There would be uh, DB two fours and threes parked outside our house. You know. Um, Kingfisher, British Racing Green, Red. Uh, there was always exotic cars there. My father was a panel fitter at Aston Martin, so he knew about cars. So did I. I would love to take a ride in a car like that. Oh, I'm living, oh, yeah. I'm living vicariously story. through you. A quick story. This When I was living on the beach with uh, uh, my, my youngest daughter and my ex-girlfriend's daughter, I'd have, uh, we would put the top down and uh, actually it was just with my daughter Louise at the time and uh, I would accelerate and she would sit in the passenger seat and catch the knobs off the radio. <laughs> if she didn't catch them and drop them, we would have to go back and start again. <laughs> uh uh, that was a moment. Yeah, that was uh, that was a good time. You do so much traveling when you're touring. And before I was a radio DJ and a podcast host, I was a tech myself. So I, I drove trucks and was on the road a lot. So I yeah. know the magic of truck stops in the middle of nowhere when you're on the road. When Foghat has to stop in the middle of the night at a truck stop, what are you going in to get? What's the craziest thing you've ever bought at a truck stop in the middle of the night on tour? Because those truck stops have everything. everything. Uh, actually, um, I have got some gloves. Seem to be uh, usually in the winter, you've either lost the gloves or left them somewhere. So gloves, coffee. <laughs> what can I tell you? Coffee. But there again, no, Starbucks aren't open late, but yeah, during the night, coffee and probably in a pair of gloves. That's what I can remember buying. Uh, yeah, gloves, neat gloves. When it comes to rock and roll drummers, you know, you can argue. The, gr the great thing about music is that you can argue about it forever, but everybody has sentimental favorites. So when it comes to drummers in general, who do you look at as your favorites or the ones that inspired you the most? Yeah, let's go to the ones that inspired me because there's so many, uh, you know, fantastic drummers that have been around for the last, ever since I started playing. But um, it was the drummers that inspired me were like um, Fred Bilo. Oh, Freddie Bilo played on all the early chess records, I Just Want to Make Love to You. Um, he was like the session drummer there. Uh, with Willie Dixon, who was the producer there, who wrote a whole bunch of like songs. Without Willie Dixon, there would be no rock and roll. With, rock and roll. Without Chuck Berry, there would be no rock and roll. But yeah, Fred Bilo, Freddie Bilo, um, Earl Palmer, who played on. Uh, he came from Louisiana. He played on the early. Uh, um, Little Richard records. The, up, the Upsiders, and he was incredible. He would play this kind of shuffle beat, but it would be like rock and roll. Whereas in England, when I was growing up, everything was like, bad, 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 like that, that, but it should really be. Anyway, that's another story. But yes, uh, Earl Palmer, Fred Bilo, um, one of the, all the drummers that played, you know, in, in early uh, Muddy Waters stuff, um, they were they were the drummers that I I'd listened to. Uh, I you know would have my cans on or rather the speakers, and I would listen to it. That's where that's what I grew up listening to. They were all 
basically uh, jazz influenced drummers. It's like, um, and that's one of the things I think I got from it. Everything should always swing. There should always be like, a, let me just, it should be. It's funny be, how this, how the microphones work on your computer because I can't hear you. And you can't? No. Well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> oh, oh I'm, I, well, I must sound great then, right? <laughs> but that's what I grew up listening to. Uh, drummers from New Orleans, blues and jazz drummers from uh, Chicago. Uh, that was my inspiration. There's just too many great drummers out there now, you know, like that have actually have passed, you know, obviously Ginger Baker, Bonzo, John Bonham. I mean, they both rewrote the book on how to play, uh, you know, drums in, in a rock and roll format. Um, and I knew both of them as well. So, uh, that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any newer drummers that you've come across, new rock drummers that you look at and go, all right, that guy's really got it? Taylor, Taylor, Taylor was, uh, Taylor Hawkins was like uh, brilliant and funny. I got, to, I met him a couple of times. Um, uh, he got up and played with me. We were playing at uh, a festival out on the West Coast in the desert, uh, Lost Highway Festival, I think it was. And in fact, he Taylor Hawkins was the reason we were actually playing there. He was playing with his own band, um, Chevy something. Chevy Metal. Yeah, Chevy Metal. And uh, I got to meet him. And uh, I before I went on stage, I said, why don't you come up and sitting with me on the last song on, on Slow Ride. He says, no, 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 I don't do that. I don't do that. So he was there on stage and um, we started playing Slow Ride and towards the end we change and it speeds up. I look over to him and he's looking at me and I throw him a drumstick and he catches it and I go, I only have one. <laughs> <laughs> and he came up and sat and, and played the floor toms and cymbals and stuff. Uh, really cool guy. Um, and I was so looking forward to getting to know him better. Um, yeah, he was a brilliant drummer. Uh, just, uh, our youth. I mean, he played some like really cool, wild, fast, hard. It was like, you know, that's what you do. Um, that was very sad that we lost him. Um, very sad. I mean, miss, must have been hard for the rest of the band as well. Uh, but hey, we carry on, don't we? That's right. Uh, I'm so envious of musical ability and songwriting ability because I don't have either, but I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by those that do. So I, you, you mentioned the loving the craft of songwriting. And I ask every songwriter that comes on the show, this question, it's not a favorite song question. It's a craft question. Can you give me an example of a song that you think is perfectly crafted? Any artist, any genre, but something that you look at and go, that's a perfectly written song. I wish I wrote it. You know, one of the things about music and writing and being creative, uh, perfection isn't something I've never been looked for. Getting it right, you know, and like, that's, it's very subjective. What's okay? This is one of the reasons that so many of us musicians, and that, especially when it comes to the recording process, you know, find it hard to let something go because there's always another way to do something. You know, you could always like do this to it, do that to it. Um, I can really only talk I, uh, with Foghat, even right from the very beginning even though maybe the song was written by Dave or Dave and Rod, the band always had a hand in creating the song, creating how it turned out. You know, um, with the current band um, since the last 20-odd years, everybody shares in the writing. Anybody who plays on the record in the creative stage of the record gets songwriting royalties, which is what we used to do until our manager changed it. But that's another story. Uh, um, it's a band thing with Folkhead. It was always a band. Um, uh, it was, yeah, music isn't about perfection. It's about, 
getting it right and being able to let it go. I mean, I, I'm sure most musicians or writers and uh, have that issue. It's like, when do you say it's good enough? You know, another very good friend of mine said, I remember saying to me, like writing music is like, like a moment in time. And I think he was right. It is. And every time you play it again, it's like we played Slow Ride for so long, but it's always fun. You can always do something. You know, you try and keep the basic, obviously the basic groove and where it's at. But um, there's always a way to do something slightly different. And uh, songs like I Just Want to Make Love to You, which, of course, we didn't write. It was written by uh, Willie Dixon and first performed by Muddy Waters. But with that song, you know, with, uh, when we first recorded it, it was three and a half minutes. Now it's eight. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's worth no. doing, it's worth doing right. Yeah, uh, but um, so it's uh, we've always been somewhat of a what's the word a jam band, I guess. Um, uh, any any excuse just to play a little bit longer. Like we're uh, we're either booked usually for do if we're if we're playing on a a festival with like three or four other bands. Normally it's like an hour show. Uh, but when it's our show, we 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 uh, have an hour and fifteen minutes on our contract, but we always end up doing an hour and forty. But our road manager has to clear it with the theatre or the venue first. Uh, the band might play longer tonight. Is that right? Because some, if it's a union hall, there's often there's uh, curfews issues. and fines. Yeah, but we're we're up to about an hour and forty five minutes now from an hour and fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> we sit. We sit in the dressing room now and sit there and play and go, why don't we do this one tonight? Well, where are we going to put it in the set? Because we've already, I have the set that's written out for everybody. So maybe we all put in our 10 cents. And then if we add something, where are we going to put it? Problems, problems, problems. Good problems. I preface this question with an apology and I blame Geezer Butler because when I spoke to him, he told me that he had 13 cats and five dogs. And when I asked him how he keeps track, and you're laughing already, but I asked him, how do you keep track and name all of these animals that you have? And he told me that he names them all after gangster rappers. And after I fell off the floor laughing, it has now been dubbed on the show, The Geezer Question. And I have to ask, and my dog is now barking because she knows I'm asking The Geezer Question, I always have to ask my guests now about their pets and where they get the names from. And I blame Geezer Butler because I never asked this question before him. You know, well, we lost our dog. who was a golden retriever, Luke, who was named by uh, our stepchildren when they were, or Linda's stepchildren when they were young. Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker. <laughs> um and we just lost uh, two cats over the, what was it, a year ago? We lost Black Chuck and Eddie. Chuck and Eddie. Yeah. Chuck, Chuck Berry and Eddie Cochran. That was the cat's name. Um, and we haven't got around to getting a new dog because we've been so busy. But we talk about it almost daily. <laughs> and of course, no, yeah, and I, especially when we were on the road and like somebody has, oh, what's it? Um, what are they called now? The uh, poodle, um, golden doodles, these beautiful <laughs> creatures. There they are. They're friendly and they're funny, you know, like, uh, and they don't shed, which might be really good because them and our, our uh, <sighs> we could probably give it to somebody like when we have to go on the road to look after. That's another problem. We're always away, but um, we're going to get a creature. I mean, not having a cat here is, pretty strange not having a dog is even stranger but we have cats we live on the water so cats are really useful because that you know there's mice and rats we don't have any at the moment because we have three feral cats who live here now um we feed them they as soon as they see us they go but um we feed them so there's no mice or rats Hemingway Uh, kept cats on Key West for a reason (laughs) right um 
But these three cats, uh, we did lose one. One of them, uh, I don't know if it got hit by a car, but one of the neighbours found it and took it to a hospital. They got uh, it got hit in the head, and uh, you know we shared the fees, you know, you know, putting it to sleep and stuff because it couldn't be mended. So there's only two actually now. There's a tabby and a black one. Then we've got a little house for the black one who lives here. And it's got a heated blanket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, this is bad. Uh, Everybody, uh, it, the answer is never boring to the geezer question. Never, never. No. And, and uh, then, you know, and then when, you know, if we're away for two or three days, um, our assistant will put some food out, but it's, it's the weekend, she's somewhere else. So, and when we come home, they go, Wow, <laughs> it's my food. <laughs> well, you're going to be gone a lot because you released Sonic Mojo in November, the new album. Yeah. Which the the artwork looks fantastic on a big album cover. It make vinyl makes me so happy. Oh, hold on, at the vinyl. Vinyl. It matches your hair. No, you got the purple one. Oh yes, it's the exact same color. Oh, I need that one. You need it, well. Thank you for making purple vinyl. I love that. Thank you. Uh, well, it wasn't me. It was um, it was our manager, Linda. She actually did uh, did all the design. There's stories in the album. It's uh, pictures of everybody who works with us. Uh, Stories about how some of the songs were made. Um, also, my longtime friend Kim Simmons, who gave me my first real job in a band, Savoy Brown, he passed away uh, is it a year ago, just over a year ago. Uh, but he co wrote four songs, actually, three songs on this album for us. So it sort of came full circle. Um, but it's, uh, I'm really proud. Actually, I'm proud of all the records we made, but I love this. Well, yeah, I'm really pleased with my sounds. You're taking it on the road, and you are kicking off the Sonic Mojo Tour at the Lynn Auditorium coming up on March 1st, and you have another appearance in New England at Mohegan Sun coming up on May 11th as well. So anybody that misses you in Mass can see you in Connecticut in May. Yeah, I actually, I have a number of friends the list is too long that live up in boston or the boston area so uh i'll be seeing some old faces uh which i always look forward to um it's going to be fun it's one of my favorite parts of the country there was a time in the mid 80s when i was living up there when i played in a band called the jam band so uh yeah i'm very fond of that area and all is forgiven <laughs> <laughs> and there's good food all the bands yeah, love touring up here food. because there's good food up here. Lobster and fish and chips. They've got great fish and chips up there. Well, we can't wait to see you March 1st at the Lynn Auditorium and then May 11th at Mohegan Sun. You can go and see Foghat, who more than 50 years later, releasing new music and selling out tours across the country. It's amazing. Actually, I, I really enjoyed talking to you this morning. Normally, you know, after... Uh, Sharing coffee with you. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. I'm looking forward to meeting you. There he is, the one and only Roger Earl from Foghat. You can see the band at the Lynn Auditorium coming up this Friday, March 1st. To get tickets, just click the link in the show notes of this episode. You'll also find the link to this episode's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast that features all of my guest music and all the artists and songs that we referenced in the interview, including songs from the new Foghat album, Sonic Mojo, which is available everywhere. You'll also find all of Foghat's links and all the Mistress Carrie links as well. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. All of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment updates in around five minutes. And you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. 
You can join me live every Tuesday night on my official Facebook page, YouTube channel, and Instagram for my weekly video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And of course, you can always find me on the radio. Get the details on all of that and more at MistressCarrie.com. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.